This morning, our reading comes from Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your God, your good order, and the firmness of your faith in Christ." If you've been with us uh, over the past couple weeks, you know that we've been uh, looking or peering into this letter in the back half of the Bible uh, called the Book of Colossians. And really, it's a a letter uh, that Paul wrote uh, to a group of Christians, a new church uh, in the city of Colossae. Colossae was an ancient church in the ancient Near East that was declining at the time in which Paul wrote this letter, uh, but it had a very thriving young church that had been planted by uh, one of Paul's followers named Epaphras. And it's a, it's a neat letter. It's very affectionate. And you read about Paul's affection for these people. If you're with us last week, you'll saw that we read uh, a very kind of powerful doctrinal section. It was a very kind of beautiful section that talks about uh, the doctrine of Jesus and what we believe about Jesus. But then what Paul does, we'll see this week, is he goes into breaking down the implications of all of that doctrine. You see, doctrine for Paul was never just a purely intellectual exercise. He always tried to move on to applying the things that he taught. And in this section, we see him trying to help this young church apply this incredible doctrinal statement that he had just spoken about. And when he does it, he really talks about two things. He talks about uh, the mystery of the faith or this faith, and he talks about the struggle of this faith. And I'd like to, to look at those two things this morning. But let's look first at the mystery of this faith, which we kind of see all throughout the passage, but really in verse 26, where Paul writes, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Uh, by now, I'm willing to bet uh, that most of you have seen uh, the new Star Wars movie. Okay, the new Star Wars movie came out last December. It's on video now. I'm thinking if you haven't seen it, you just don't care, right? But if you do care, if you even care a little bit of an ounce, then you've probably seen it at this point, though I, I'll try not to spoil it. But what you know, if you've seen it, and if you haven't seen it, what you need to know is that the movie at the very end leaves you with this huge mystery, 
Okay, the last scene leaves you with this big question that just remains unanswered. And what is so hard about that unanswered question is we have to wait two years to find out what the answer to that question is. And then you're never guaranteed that the next movie is going to give you the answer. Well, I don't know if you saw this in the news this week, but the the creator or the director or the writer of of the Star Wars movie uh, gave a little hint or a little clue that tried to answer the mystery. And when he did that, he didn't tell you what the answer was, but he gave a little clue. And when he did that, the internet went crazy because everybody had all these theories about what the answer could be. And now everybody reshifted their theory as to what the answer of this mystery is. And what it reminded me is that deep down, we all kind of like a good mystery. We hate it in one sense, but we also like a good mystery. We both like and, and hate the cliffhanger movies that leave us on the very edge of our seat. But it, it is the thrill of those movies that tends to get us really, really excited. Well, if you read the scriptures at all, you'll know that the scriptures talk, not just Paul, but all of the scriptures talk about one kind of great cosmic mystery. If you read your Bibles, you start in the book of Genesis, and you'll read Genesis 1 and 2, and you'll read about how, how God created the world, and he created it perfect. Mankind was the capstone of God's creation, and, uh, and after God had created the world, he declared that it was good, and, and as you read, you see that it was good. Uh, mankind was in perfect harmony in his relationship with God. He was in perfect harmony with the created order. And he was in perfect harmony with, with, uh, between Adam and Eve. There was perfect harmony of relationship. But it didn't last very long. Because if you read Genesis chapter 3, mankind kind of ruined it all. Adam and Eve in their kind of pride and hubris decided that they would rather be God. So they sinned. They, they did the very thing that God told them not to do. And what they introduced was all sorts of, of disharmony and dissidence to the world. There was disharmony in mankind's relationship with the creation. There was a fracture in his relationship with God. And now there was dissonance in his relationship with one another. It caused all sorts of problems. But even after God's judgment, in Genesis 3, God comes after their sin and he comes and he judges Adam and Eve and and shares with them the the reality that they were now going to have to live in because they sinned. But even in the midst of God's judgment, we see his grace. We see this great kind of mystery or story of redemption begin because even in the midst of the judgment, God begins to hint at something. He begins to hint that at some point he is going to come back and make right everything that had gone wrong. That he's going to come and provide redemption and rescue for humanity. Think about it this way. I don't know how many of you like to take hot showers. I like to take hot showers from time to time. But what happens after you take a hot shower? You, You get out of the shower and you notice what? That the mirror is covered over with all sorts of condensation, I think is the right term for that, right? So if you need to use the mirror right after a hot shower, it's a little difficult because you have to wait for the condensation uh, to come off of the mirror. I remember when I was a kid, I strategized and devised all sorts of strategies to be able to sleep as late as I possibly could and yet still make it to school on time. 
And one of the strategies I devised is I'd wake up, I'd take a hot shower, but I'd have to see in the mirror right after the hot shower. So I discovered that if I took my sister's blow dryer and put it on cold air and blew it over the the mirror, it would take the condensation off a lot quicker so I could see myself in the mirror after that. Whenever I think, and this is a bizarre illustration, whenever I think about the Old Testament, I think of a mirror that is shrouded, shrouded in condensation. Because the Old Testament is all about a mystery that is slowly becoming revealed. You see, the Old Testament is a series of hints, it's a series of prophecies and, and typologies that as they come, slowly bring the picture into focus. It continues to hint about a rescuer who is coming and a redemption that is very near. And then as you read the scriptures, you get to the gospel. And when the gospels come, the mystery is now revealed. The mirror has now been cleared and the climax of the scriptures is now reached and it has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery is revealed in Jesus. Paul talks about this when he's speaking to the believers uh, that he has met and he hopes that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. You see, Paul is building on this idea that we talked about last week when we looked at the book of Colossians. He talks about how, how Christ is preeminent, about how Christ is supreme and he needs to be the essential element. He doesn't just reveal to us the character of God, but Jesus himself becomes the way that we are rescued or redeemed before God. He's the means by which that fractured relationship that we all deal with between us and God, he is the means that that fractured relationship becomes healed. He is the one who's hinted at all throughout the Old Testament. He is the climax of God's story redemption, and he needs to be and is the climax of our personal stories of rescue and redemption as well. But Paul doesn't just say that the mystery of God is revealed in Jesus. He also tells us that, that the mystery is broader and deeper than anyone had ever presumed or imagined. He talks about how broad it is in verse 27. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We'll talk more about this as we, as we get throughout the book of Colossians and as we progress throughout the book. But what Paul is starting to talk about is something that was very true of that cultural moment. You see, Paul operated and wrote in the context of the Jewish nation. And the Jews mistakenly had believed that they had a corner on the God market. 
They believed that because they were chosen by God to have a special relationship in the Old Testament, that they were the only ones who could have a relationship with God. And it led to a certain kind of racial superiority amongst the Jewish people in Paul's day. Parenthetically, most of the second half of the New Testament deals with this very issue, which at its core is uh, an issue of race. It is a racial issue. So then Paul comes along, and Paul himself was one of the most well-respected and foremost Jewish uh, thinkers in his day. Paul comes along and says that this mystery is now much broader than we all thought it was. This mystery, this plan of salvation is actually for the whole world. It is for Jews and it is for Gentiles. It is for rich people and it is for poor people. It is for the culturally elite and it is for the cultural outcasts. It is far broader than anyone before had presumed, imagined, or even expected. But it isn't just broader. Paul says it's also deeper. Talking about Jesus, he says, In Jesus, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained. You see, what Paul is marveling at is the fact that the blessings of this gospel are far richer than anyone presumed or expected. Of course, Paul says we are rescued by God by faith. We no longer have to fear the condemnation that we deserve. We get to escape the punishment actually that we deserve for our sins. But that isn't all to the gospel. It isn't just that. There is so much more. Imagine for a second, this is the way I like to think about it. Imagine for a second that you had committed uh, just a horrible crime and that you had to uh, go away to prison and serve a, a life sentence in prison for a horrible crime that you had to commit, that you committed. And then as you're in prison, miraculously one day you receive news that you have received the governor's pardon. That you have been let go, that you have been freed from this life sentence that you had to serve. You have become an object of great grace on behalf of the governor. You get to leave jail. But of course, even after leaving jail, you're going to have to deal with some difficulties in life. You're going to have the stigma of being kind of an ex-convict. And you have no job and no money. And you face all this difficulty uh, trying to find a job, reconciling it with your past. But imagine this. Imagine one day you receive a pardon from the governor, but instead of having to make life work thereafter on your own, you not only receive a pardon from the governor, but you get to move into the governor's mansion and you get treated like a son or daughter of the governor for the rest of your life. All of the rights And privileges of being a son or daughter of the governor now become yours. Friends, this is what Paul is marveling at in the gospel. 
Because he's saying in Jesus, not only are we pardoned from our sin, not only are we freed from our condemnation, but we actually receive all the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. We are treated to all of the rights that belong to the sons and daughters of the Most High God. All of the treasures of the kingdom, all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm are given to us in that moment. You see, we're not just pardoned into a life of half-hearted acceptance from God. Instead, we are pardoned into a life of adoption. We have it all. We are complete in our relationship with Jesus Christ. This mystery revealed in Jesus Christ is far broader and deeper than anyone presumed or imagined. And this is why when Paul begins to write about this, he regularly breaks into awe and worship as he is even writing. Because this mystery, as it becomes revealed, translates into worship. Just a side note, friends, this is what I think heaven's going to be like. I think heaven is going to be all of those who are in Christ sitting there marveling at the depth and the richness and the beauty of our relationship with Jesus Christ for all of eternity. It will take us all of eternity to plumb the depths of the riches that we have in the person of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, it will break into worship for all of eternity. This is the mystery of faith that is now revealed to us in Jesus. But this mystery of faith isn't all that Paul talks about in his passage. He also talks about uh, the struggle of the faith as well. Not just the mystery of the faith, but the struggle of the faith. All throughout Paul's letters, as you read, you'll see that Paul talks about his struggling or his contending for the faith. And he uses uh, all sorts of athletic metaphors uh, to describe not just his personal walk uh, with God, but also his desires for uh, those Christians that he's uh, interacted with to also grow and mature in their faith. And he talks about it really on two fronts. He talks about the work of the faith and also the suffering of the faith. He says this in verse 28. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. See, Paul had this incredibly deep desire to grow in his faith and to see those people who he ministered to to also grow in their faith. You see, he believed in the power of Christians always maturing and growing in their walk with God the Father. But he never paints with a broad brush here. He never shies away from saying that this is not hard work. It absolutely is hard work. And we all that are in this journey of faith know that to be true. When we enter into a relationship with God, we don't become perfect overnight. That just simply doesn't happen. 
The Spirit, of course, enters into our hearts and lives within us miraculously, but there still is this thing called the flesh, that old person inside of us. And the Bible talks about the flesh doing battle with God's Spirit that is in us as well, and it is a struggle. Paul talks about uh, this struggle in Romans 7. He talks about it for a long time. He talks about his own life and he says, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't do are the things that I end up doing. He talks about this inner battle and this inner war that is raging inside of him between God's spirit and the flesh. And any one of you who have tried to change anything about yourself knows how true this is. All of us have gone through points where this is just something in my life that I would like to change. So I'm going to try really hard to change it. And when we do, we can feel that battle raging inside of us. And at times, it can feel very hopeless. Am I ever going to get past this thing in my life? But even Paul's words here are seasoned with grace that provides us with hope. Verse 29 says this, and this gives me hope. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. You see, you and I can can rush off and try to grow in maturity through our own strength and through our own willpower. But what Paul says is even that is doomed to fail. But he recognized that God's grace was with him and that God gives him the energy for this interior battle through his grace. Friends, you and I are called to to toil and to struggle and to work through our faith, growing in fullness and maturity. But God, in his grace, gives us the very energy that we need to make it happen. But there's another component to this struggle of faith. And it really may be kind of the most curious verse of this whole section And we read about it in verse 25. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. This verse uh, has left a lot of people kind of scratching their heads, wondering, what is Paul talking about here? Is Paul suggesting that, that Christ's suffering was not enough? That somehow his followers after him need to to complete God's work through their own suffering. And it seems like that at face value. But I think if you look at Paul's overall argument, that I don't think that's what he's really saying at all in this passage. What he's saying is something that we saw last week when we looked at that section on Jesus Christ. Because in that section... It says that Christ is the head of the church and we, his people, are the body. We are an extension of him. So what Paul really is affirming in these verses is something that we see all throughout the New Testament and is actually confirmed by Jesus' words in the New Testament as well, which basically say, if the head, if Jesus Christ suffered, then his body, the church, you and I, this community of believers, 
will suffer as well. In fact, it's so stark that Paul rejoiced that he suffered because it was a reminder to him that he was in Christ. It was a reminder to him that he was a part of the body of Christ in his sufferings because Christ, the head, suffered as well. It was a sign that he was Christ's. Friends, this is one of the hardest things for us, but it's one of the most plainest things in all of the scriptures. Jesus said in John chapter 15, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And Paul says it very plainly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When we read verses like this, we have to, we have to contend with them. And we have to ask ourselves sometimes the really hard questions when we read these about why we don't suffer as much as the scriptures talk about. We have to ask ourselves as a church whether we in some ways have watered down our understanding into something genteel. Have we watered down our understanding of what it means to be the church in order to somehow avoid suffering? Are we emphasizing the right things when we talk about being the church? Are we being captured by things that don't really matter in the long run? Have we bought into some sort of organizational or corporate idea of church rather than what it really means to be the church that we read about in the New Testament? And we, ask, we have to ask ourselves personally really hard questions as well. Have we, as individual Christians, bought into some sort of watered-down understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ in order to simply avoid persecution or suffering? We have to ask ourselves these really hard questions. But here's what I think is amazing about the whole thing, about this whole passage. Because despite the toil Despite this internal battle that Paul talks about, despite the sufferings that come from within or the sufferings and persecutions that come from without, it all, at the end of the day, in Paul's mind, leads to joy. See, Paul wrote this letter of joy. It's an incredible letter dripping with joy and affection. He wrote it from prison, telling these people that they ought to rejoice, that they ought to find joy, even in the midst of great toil and of great suffering. Last week, I I had this really cool uh, opportunity and privilege. Uh, Last week, I was asked to go and uh, uh, guest lecture in a course over uh, at Stevenson University. And uh, the course was a unique one. It uh, It was an elective that humanities and English majors could take. And uh, the course was called The Pursuit of Happiness. And uh, in this course, the students, it was only five or six of them, they were honors level students. And what they do is they explore the pursuit of happiness from all sorts of different perspectives, from a Buddhist perspective, from a Hinduist perspective, from a New Age perspective. And they asked me to come in and talk about this idea of the pursuit of happiness uh, from a Christian perspective. What is the Christian viewpoint on this idea of happiness? 
And I was thrilled at the opportunity to go, and I, and I went and sat down with these students. We had a wonderful discussion. But one of the first things that I wanted to say to them is that as I look at the scriptures, I see a, a great discrepancy between the word happiness and the word joy. You see, the word happiness to me is kind of a thin word. It's, it's uh, emotions or feelings that you and I might feel based on the circumstances of our lives. If our circumstances are good, then we're going to feel really happy about life. And if our circumstances are bad, then we're going to feel kind of sad about life. But what I say to these students is when the Bible talks about joy, it talks about something much more thicker, something much more meaningful than just happiness. Because at the end of the day, the Bible tells us that joy is rooted in something that is much deeper than our circumstances. Ultimately, it is rooted in our relationship with God. You see, the mystery of God was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, who suffered much, yet the scriptures say, suffered much with joy with the joy that was set before him. The life that he calls you and I to is a life that is full of toil and work and suffering and even at times persecution. But we have the opportunity to tackle it all, not with happiness, but with joy. Not because it is fun, not because it is easy, but because it is a sign that we are his. Let's pray.